Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Wrench Turners Podcast. The show that's about improving the life, well-being, and productivity of mechanics everywhere. I'm your host, Mr. Joshua Taylor, and today we have a very special guest. He is a content creator on almost every social media platform. He is a shop owner and motorcycle mechanic. Mike Abel of Abel Motorworks. On today's show, we talk about a whole slew of things, uh, ranging from HD to motorcycles, so on and so forth. We get into some nitty-gritty, like how we transition from push bikes to motorcycle, uh, talking about their mechanic, as you'll see, and succeeding from the inside. Let's get into it. We'll get to that story too, but... uh... And, and firstly and foremost, uh, I appreciate you given the time. Um, I, I really do. Yeah, you you are the first. Uh, you are the first mechanic who is not automotive or H a automotive HD or fleet. I've had well, those think. three. I've had them on a couple of times, but you are the first mechanic who is actually outside of that purview, which is awesome, and also motorcycle, which is also awesome. Yeah. Um, I was- yeah, I was listening to your. Uh, uh, I listened to a few of your podcasts now, and the last one I listened to was you were speaking about Triumph motorcycles that you worked on and how you liked working on Triumphs. And I was like, yes, I definitely relate to that. I can understand where yes. you're coming from. So, so uh, it's quite. Yeah, uh, it's good to see that you work on a few bits and pieces as well and got a bit of variation in there. It's nice. Yeah, it was it, it working at the at the so it's it's uh, the shop I was working at mm-hmm. the power sports store. So we worked on. You know, side by sides, ATVs, um, yes. snowmobiles, motorcycles, scooters from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things, you know, the summertime working on motorcycles. Yeah. So, and, and describing, and, and you've probably listened to the episode of how we we're describing the differences in working on certain brands yeah. and how much simpler it, ev- it always seems to be to work on a Triumph. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are, I think simple, simple, exposed. Everything works correctly. They're just um, and they and they unify a lot of bolts, don't they? So you get a lot of very similar bolt patterns, bolt sizes. Yeah, they are very good at that kind of mechanical, user-friendly element of things. It's really good. You can basically attack most most triumphs with like a five or six mil Allen, and yeah. that's about. It, it, you may have to go to an eight. Yeah. Uh, if you're working on the like brake caliper bolts and and stuff like that, and then it's uh, usually a 17 mil Allen for axles, 24, 27 mil for axle nuts, and that's about like that's yeah. the extent of it, right? You yeah. can you can pull a rear wheel chain sprockets off on a on a Bonneville for other than maybe having to pull the exhaust off on them, but you can pretty much do that with those few tools. And the good thing is they've refined it over the years. So that like early 2000s where they started to bring out their like Bonnevilles, the early ones of those, the early iterations, they weren't as good. But you can tell that they have refined it and made it more and more usable as they've gone forward, which is always a nice thing for them to develop as not just, you know, reliability and such. Like, so they're developing mechanical exactly. usability as well, aren't they? Yeah, and that's quite a nice thing to do. I'm a, I am a and big fan of Triumphs. I think one of the big differences that I've noticed, and maybe this is Triumph or or maybe the maybe a more English style of engineering. Mm -hmm. But when you look at automotive from like the big three standpoint, you know, Chrysler, Chevy, Ford, and you look at their iterative processes of development, 
they make big changes. Yeah. And you do you do like mid model updates, which are are fairly large updates. But they don't seem to fix a whole lot in those major updates where so, when you look at Triumph, it's like tiny little little pieces like this. We moved this like six mil this way, and it's yeah. infinitely better because we moved it just a little bit. So by far the biggest example of that, of anything, is Ferrari versus Porsche. So Ferrari, every few years, they redesign their whole cars they're amazing, everyone loves what they look like, but they're never the most reliable or usable thing. Whereas you get a Porsche 911, you go back 30 years, it looks, every year it looks slightly different, but it's got the same concept, but they just make it a little bit better every year. 30 years down the line, you've got a, you know, incredibly reliable, quick car. They've kind of covered all their bases and gone through the development over years, rather than just scrapping it all and starting from scratch five years later. And that's kind of a... 100%. That should be done. I, yeah. That's, uh, it's, uh, do I have it out? Oh, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. However, I think they, 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 uh, let me get on the camera here. Yeah, I think they won this, this here. This is what just about everybody thinks of when they think of Porsche. Like yeah. this, this fundamental design, and it hasn't really changed, but this, on the other hand, when I'm getting the camera in the, in the shot, this right here, this duck yeah. tail. Wow. Right, that is what. The big old whale tail. And, uh, iconic, I isn't of, it? I think of it's iconic. Yeah. Hmm. And then you... Uh, do you know Singer? No. Never Who's heard of Singer? Singer? Oh, my goodness. Singer Porsches. Okay, so off-camera later on today, when you have... Yeah. You know, when you want to fall down a Porsche rabbit hole, look up... <laughs> right. Look, look up Singer Porsche. Well, okay. okay. So they effectively take bodies like that... Yeah. And they put all the new bits in it. Ah... So if you could imagine the the currently I think it's 480 horsepower flat six that they put in the current like the in the in the so, GT3. So they, they reshell all the new models to make them classics basically. E effectively, but they put like all of the switch gear is either from the new car or updated. Mm -hmm. All of the interior is either from the new car or updated. Excellent. All of the powertrain yeah. is either from the new car or updated. So if you can imagine a 450 horsepower flat six naturally aspirated new Porsche powertrain yep. in in one of those. Yeah. If you can yeah, imagine like amazing. the weight that. The, yeah. the sensation, the, the analog feel, but you have, like, nearly 500 horsepower, naturally aspirated flat, flat six noise. Like, yeah, yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. <clears throat> All right. Let's, uh, well, some of these folks have no idea who you are because uh, the, the large proportion of my audience uh, in, in the places where this seems to get showed uh, the most is mostly automotive and HD. So uh, they don't understand that you're a content creator, motorcycle mechanic, and someone who has a fairly large following. So let us, how do you, Mike, uh, yeah. how did you get into this business? Uh, well, if I, if I start from where, right at the beginning, I think is the best way to start. Um, it all started out as a, I, was, I was a push bike mechanic when I was a teenager. So I did work experience at, in school, like a lot of people did. And then, uh, so I did a week. The following weekend, they just asked me to come back. And I ended up working there for seven years, I think. Most of the time, just a, just a, just a general bicycle mechanic. And it's something that has kind of stayed with me for until now. Hence the uh, the injury I currently got is still uh, push bike related, and it all started all started back then, 15 years ago, I guess. 
So um, uh, that's, where, that's where it all started out. And, um, and it was actually through that job that I ended up getting all my, all my following jobs, really. Um, uh, and I think quite a common route most people go is they go down the route of apprenticeships, exactly what I did. And it was actually through uh, a client or a customer of ours at the bike shop that I got that, uh, that apprenticeship. So uh, that's, that was my, my tail end. And that was just a general automotive apprenticeship. It was, I'd say, 95% cars. And then we did a few, mainly the, uh, the owner's friends and his own personal motorcycles. And that's where I mm-hmm. really got that kind of fascination and want to work on bikes. And I was riding bikes at the same time myself and racing a little bit. So I really knew I wanted to go down that avenue. But it all started out as just an, a, an automotive apprenticeship, really. Awesome. Yeah, I think... It- there's there's a few there's only a few ways that most folks so far have have described them getting into whether it's uh, automotive or more specifically mechanics. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's their first job, their first role, their first manager somehow encouraged them into and staying into the the industry, or it was familial, somewhat relationary, uncles, grandfathers, fathers. They either owned or were mechanics. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, owned businesses, not owned mechanic, but owned the businesses that that had mechanics or or were mechanics themselves. Yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah. it's interesting. We all we all and you started with push bike and and uh, for those for those of us uh, across the pond, uh, that's mountain bike. Mountain biking, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mountain biking. It, it's interesting that the subtle differences in vernacular even in our own industry. So, you know, at the end of the day, when we work on stuff, most of it's got wheels, yeah. engine, basic powertrain, stuff you sit in, you drive, so on and, and there, so forth. There, yeah, there's some definite terminology that, you know, it takes a few seconds to catch up with what you're, uh, what you're actually talking about. But you, also, you can work it out usually, can't you? Work out what you're on about. Um, but yeah, that, uh, that first apprenticeship I got, I was really lucky with a place that I, 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 I landed on. It was a small place. It was uh, an owner who was, he was almost retirement age, really. He's actually retired this year, but he should mm-hmm. have retired 10 years ago, really. So um, it, it was a small place. It was just him, one other mechanic and myself, and it was uh, actually in a building that was an offshoot of his house. So it basically had a, a separate workshop in the back of his house. And uh, we worked from there, and it was fantastic. He was a really good mechanic. Uh, I still talk to him nowadays, still now. He's great. So it's a, it's a really good learning point. And he did everything, I don't know, it was, it was a really good fundamental learning for everything I've done going forward. Everything was super clean, super tidy. Everything was done properly. It was a really good place to learn. And that's kind of what set me up well, I guess, for, for everything I've done so, thus far, really. And I think learning... The challenge I think I've come across thus far, and I get to record one of these um, later today with a with another mechanic, but he's an apprentice. He's he's a young apprentice, like just in the trade a year. So we're going to get a little bit of insight from him. But when I talk to young mechanics, trying to remember how my own first year was and what it's like now, mm-hmm. there seems to be a divergence from how you and I learned. Mm-hmm. We didn't, they're not getting as much one-to-one time with either a mentor or, or a trainer or a coach or, or a foreman per se. Right, okay. It's a yeah. lot more production focused, like get you in, get you working, get you making money. Right, okay, um, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, probably not the best way to, way to learn. You want to be that one-on-one, someone, 
I know, I know you don't want to be watched all the time. You don't want to be, you know, micromanaged, but as a young apprentice, some of the best way to learn, you know, you get to learn everything correctly, right from the offset from day one. It's probably the best way I'd recommend is to try and get in very close with a small organization that can really, you know, teach you one-on-one rather than, you know, you'll be just one of 20 mechanics or so. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it's better to be in that smaller environment for the first year. I think, I think that really helped me to be honest. And that, there, there, I think that brings up another dichotomy as well, because the, the, Apprentices that seem to be learning the most are working for a larger volume, at least in automotive. I haven't had the opportunity to speak with anybody in power sports or, or marine who's working for a large store. They're all small. Yeah. But the larger volume automotive stores who have the capacity, I think more specifically in revenue, that can afford to have someone like a non-production foreman who yeah. can spend one-on-one time. Yes, yeah. They have the ability more to do it because it it yeah, seems like yeah. the small business owner, the small shop doesn't have the capacity of revenue to say, "Hey, yeah. I can spend, you know, I can 2 to 3 hours." Yeah. Yeah. They don't necessarily have that capacity, so that's a that's a really big challenge that mm. that maybe Maybe because of capitalism, yeah. uh, maybe because yeah. of the industry in, in you know, gross profit margins and things of yeah. that nature. Over, but, over here, when I did my apprenticeship, they were quite well subsidized. So an apprentice didn't mm-hmm. cost you a huge amount of money for the first couple of years. So I know that they, my boss wasn't that interested in me making him money for the first year because it mm-hmm. didn't cost him a huge amount of money for me to be there. And he told me that first year, he was like, you're not here to make me money. You're here to learn so you can make me money in a few years time. But he, and he, he made that pretty clear for the first, and that was, you know, there was no real uh, weight on my shoulders to go and earn, earn him loads of money instantly. I knew I was kind of there to learn, which I guess is what an apprenticeship scheme is about and what you should, should I really believe do. wholeheartedly. And, and I think that's where, and, and I'll, I'll get some of the, the folks in America to, to check me on this, but I don't believe there's a whole lot of subsidy in America. I believe yeah. there's, there is subsidy here in Canada, the, especially our tuitions. Um, to go to our, uh, for, let me speak specifically because of the two that I know, for mm-hmm. automotive and motorcycle, they are both heavily subsidized by the Canadian government, more specifically the provincial government uh, here in Ontario. So, for example, my recent uh, foray to my level one motorcycle school, which is eight weeks, mm-hmm. um, my tuition was only $400 for right, eight weeks yeah. of school. Yeah. So that it's heavily subsidized. Like $400 is basically enough to cover administration fees. Yeah. You know, uh, that's about it. Everything else is subsidized by the government for the most part, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I think that has started to tail off a bit in the UK. And um, from, from looking into it myself as well, it has definitely mm-hmm. tailed off recently. And it has become more expensive to have apprenticeships over here. But it still is, you know, uh, a subsidized thing over here. And they are trying to get placements from people over in the local colleges and such like. So they are still trying to push it, I think. I think that also stems from the fact that mechanics in the UK are still are regulated similarly to how we are in Canada. You guys actually have a, an exam, if I'm not mistaken, to pass yeah. for automotive, for motorcycle, for... T- you. I don't rec- recall what... What is your... Um, in Canada, we call it truck coach. Um, it's it's there's diesel and then there's truck coach. So the oh, truck okay. coach basically gives you uh, air. I think it's air brake license in Canada. Right, okay. It's a yeah. very it's a very small subsect because you get yeah. that when you get your diesel. 
Is it the I same broken the same up or is it just one? I don't know over here. I don't know. I don't know anything about the truck side of it. I don't really get involved with that at all, and don't know anybody in that in, in that side of it. Kind of the, the bigger, uh, heavy automotive they call it over here. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the the smaller stuff, it's all governed under one um, one license or one. They call it like a, a level two, or is what you needed minimum. Level three was advised, and that was just uh, just automotive basically. So it was just all, okay. all into one. I don't know about the heavier side of stuff, the truck and plant and such. I don't know why. Not something I've ever been involved with. And that's interesting because, you know, one of the things I've experienced over the years, uh, even from day one, like walking into the first dealership I walked into, and this might might be the fact that it was 20 plus years ago, but the dealership owner at the time, you know, he had bulldozers, he had tractors, he had some big trucks, we had... We had one tech in the shop at the time that had his his truck coach license as well as his automotive. So okay. occasionally he'd be working on a little bit of everything. Um, so I experienced the heavy truck and, and the automotive and we camper vans and, and so on and so forth all the way through. And as I progressed through, you know, I've worked on forklifts. I've worked on motorcycles. I've worked on... Now, I never had a license or worked with somebody who had a license to work on boats, but I worked on boats as well. And like I've worked on so many things, whereas – and that's similar to a lot of my Canadian brothers who work in this industry and around this. It's like they work on trailers. They work on trucks. They work on big trucks. They work on a little bit of everything. Yes. And yet when I talk to folks – and when I talk to folks – like I talked to another gentleman from the UK – he was similar to your circumstance where he's only ever worked on one brand for his entire career for 20 plus years yeah, and never experienced anything else. And as soon as it was something outside of that brand, outside of that product, it was like, nope, let, let them go to that dealer. Yeah. Is that, is that how the UK is as a whole? That seems to be more of the, the case. Yeah. You, you get, you definitely get more motorcycle specific car specific or light van and then you get the heavy the the heavier workshops and they are very much split up i think it's purely i think it's purely just because of uh the size of a lot of the workshops over here it's really uncommon to have a or especially where i'm from where it's you know haven't got huge populations and there's not massive amount of people where i am in the uk there isn't any big workshops around here so even main dealers might only have four or five techs um really yeah, so I'm 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 probably two or three hours away from London, which is obviously where you'll have the biggest workshops in the UK. Out where I am, I reckon yeah, main dealers will have three or four techs. I know for a fact at the minute the motorcycle dealerships have got one or two tech at the minute, and there's four main dealers in Norwich, and they've got one or two technicians. So it's the volume wow. from where I am is quite small. Um, so we haven't got any of those large, big workshops that can accommodate everything you know motorcycles cars vans trucks lorries they just all get separated out into their specialized little uh, work, uh, workshops that's 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 very interesting to mm. to think about how different that is because i've i've just been working in a shop with you know there's five techs now yeah. we infrequent how the shift work kind of works in because we've got some some part-timers per se but yeah. there was five of us working pretty constantly, and we're in a tiny town. Like, yeah, we're really. in a tiny town. And you go uh, – now, there's no main dealers here in my town. Mm-hmm. But you go 15 minutes up the road, and there's seven. Right. And each one of them, 
I think the smallest the smallest shop of those dealers has eight techs. Probably okay. the smallest yeah. one. And the largest one I think has about fifteen or sixteen. Yeah. And that's that's still small shop. Small, I yeah. you go up the road to um slightly, you know, forty five minutes away to Barry and mm-hmm. the larger shops there are you know, 25, 30 techs in the yeah. shop, like busy, busy shops. Yeah, really, um, really busy. Yeah, I reckon I reckon uh, the biggest main dealers or the biggest shops around here, if their main dealers have probably got eight, seven or eight, is probably the biggest around wow. here, and that's main dealer, especially if you go into private side of things where, you know, it's a uh, uh, non-main dealer, you're looking way smaller than that. We seem to have quite a lot of very small workshops, but lots of them, mm-hmm. so kind of three, maybe four techs, uh, or, 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 or employees, in fact. So that might be two techs, and you know, a couple of other staff working there. But yeah, we seem to have really high quantities of small workshops out here. And perhaps that's 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 a, um, a progression of tradition. Payton, one of the things possibly. I, I know that a lot of, of people, especially my customers, they mm-hmm. definitely like. Um, a lot of the people that I work for and have worked with in the past, they like to go and talk to the mechanic who's worked on their car. They don't really want to go and talk to a secretary, hand their keys over. It's more of a, they want to talk to the mechanic. They much prefer a smaller, small, I guess it's trustworthy. You can speak to the guy who's working on your car or they can speak to the person working on your motorcycle. So I, I think there's a big element in that. Um, and I see that quite regularly over here. People don't want to go into, you know, go and buy a coffee, hand their keys over, wait for their car, and then it just gets delivered around a couple of hours later. They want to go and speak to you know, the, the mechanic that's working on their car. It's an interesting twist because here it's – I think we're moving away from it, mm. and I'm not sure who's pushing it more because we get a lot of trendy topics and, and conversations around customer experience, customer value, customer service – Things yeah. of that nature when you talk about, you know, having the coffee and the and the massage chairs and the waiting yes. room and, and yeah. you know, the fantastical things like having being, you know, the uh, anyone who, who would wish to have their nails done in, in the waiting room or have a massage or things like that. You know, those are topics and, and conversations that are being had. Who's yeah. pushing that narrative? Is it truly yeah. the consumer that's pushing that narrative or is that a way for, shall we say, a conglomerate? Uh, yes. of sorts of a, a brand conglomerate saying hey how do we show that we're valuing 150 200 dollars an hour a labor rate hour you know yeah. how do we show that well we'll give we'll give all this stuff away for free yeah well when we talk about customers and their desire to understand or lack of desire to understand what's going on with their vehicle timelines and things of that things like that they want to be spoken to clearly they want to know what is going on and, and communicate well with them. Yep. That doesn't require a massage chair. That doesn't require you know chips and pop in the waiting lounge. Yeah. That I, I think, more specifically I, I think, requires the consumer to talk to the mechanic. Yes, yeah, and, and I think that's what it comes down to. And I think a lot of people, especially my kind of customers and the people that I deal with quite regularly, they see that as a bit of a a bit of a facade, you know, a bit of a covering up for, or what they want to go and speak to a mechanic. They want to see what's being done to their bike and they quite like that. Um, and that's, 
yeah, definitely a, a change in direction from the the way kind of big dealers are going and 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 all, and all sorts around my area anyway. But that you know, I, I'm not from a not from a large place as such. So it might just be the fact mm-hmm. that there's uh, not as many people, not as bigger workshops out here that that things have just gone that way naturally. Really, I think there's another element too that that I think the really intelligent people have have kind of found that out. Mm. I spoke with, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to, but I spoke with Jim Bernasek uh, a while back, and he, and he brought up something that was really, really mind, uh, really mind thoughtfulness. I don't, I'm not even sure how to, to really uh, describe it. Like, it really made me chew on it and noodle on it. But he's got this phrase uh, and uses it when he was running dealerships, and it's SPM and SPDM, so shop production managers, which is quote-unquote yeah. foreman, and the yeah. um, SDPM, which is Service Drive Production Forum, uh, uh, Service Drive Production Manager, sorry. Yeah. The two are completely focused on their specific areas of production, but his mindset was both of those people need to be active or former highly skilled technicians so that they can have conversations with customers eloquently and simply so that they they feel like they're talking to their mechanic so they understand what's going on so they don't feel like they're getting the brush off they don't feel like they're getting a sales pitch from the the service drive they don't feel like they're they're a number they feel like they can talk to a mechanic understand what's going on and and be happy with their day yeah, I think that's the most important thing. So you take your car somewhere. You don't want to just go, yep, it's serviced, all done, here's your keys. You want to know about the car. You want to know the ins and outs of it. You want to know, you know, life of parts, know that it's been checked over correctly, what's going to happen next year, you know, preemptive stuff for next year. I think that speaking to someone who has knowledge is one of the most important parts of getting anything, you know, maintained serviced is super important. Mm. Super Which kind of leads us to where, you know, how you've got how you transition from that push bike, uh, yeah. so to speak, in automotive, and and transition now into where you are now, and you've got you know Able Motorworks, you are a motorcycle service shop, you have a, a fairly large following on both Instagram and on YouTube, you put out a whole lot of content on several platforms. That's how I found you. Yeah, um, it's very obvious from your um forget about the quality of the content for a second because it's it's quite high it's 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 very high but the really cool thing is how you describe your your first year having someone say you're not here to make me money you're here to learn so that you can make me money later that is very evident in your style of work now so yeah. how did you get from there to now well, I knew when I was at, at doing that apprenticeship that I wanted to work on motorcycles. I knew that's where I wanted to go next. So I actually applied for more apprenticeships at all the local dealerships uh, to be a motorcycle mechanic. I didn't get a single one, but I was at college. Yeah, I got I got turned down for all of them. I didn't even get replied for 90%. So I actually, um, uh, it's funny because I actually now do quite a lot of work for all of them, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a bit of a full circle. Moment. Karma. Yeah, it is. I, I'm, um, and, and, the, and you notice it's karma? Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it. Um, so so um, a friend of mine was a 
it was an odd, an odd little custom Harley shop. Okay, it was called it was a Brit Chopper Customs. It's still going. I still speak to the owner every now and again. But a friend of mine was at co who I was at college with, and he was doing a he was working for a classic car um, restoration company. So they used to restore classic cars. He was fabricator basically, and he was working at this custom Harley place on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, uh, just building bike bits really. Uh, he was good good at machining and welding and such likes. And both me and him ended up jacking in both our apprenticeships, and we went and worked there full time self-employed i was a mechanic he was a uh he was a fabricator and the owner of the shop um wasn't actually a, a, a mechanic or a, an engineer by trade he was uh he, he was in tech basically and he was working away three or four days a week and we would basically run the shop by ourselves at the age of i think we were both 18 19 at the time so we had this oh my. yeah we had free run of a basically a, a, a custom harley shop is looking back on it now it was phenomenal but it was really just in at the deep end so i was uh i was in charge of all the full engine rebuilds from from day one almost in at the deep end um so i learned quite a lot uh at that time and also i had to learn the uh, the business side of it as well you know we were there on our own uh four days a week we were there on our own so we had to learn the business side of it pretty quickly and it surprisingly went all right went pretty well so we did that together for a couple of years my friend ended up leaving and it was actually when I was inside that workshop that I started Able Motorworks from inside. So um, we knew that we needed a bit more quick turnover of, of customers. Um, so I asked if I could start doing general mechanical work on, uh, you know, road bikes, sports bikes, motocross bikes. So I was actually racing motocross at the time. Um, so I ended up getting in uh, just general motorcycles uh, for, for mechanical work. And it got to the point where it was so busy that part of, of the business that I ended up going on my own and, and carrying it on with my own workshop really so that's how I transferred over into uh into having my own workshop it was a quite a natural progression it was really handy that I was able to open that up from inside another someone else's workshop I was self-employed anyway so it kind of was quite an easy transition but it was a uh, mm -hmm. you know I, I I knew quite early on that people weren't going to want to bring their sports bikes road bikes to a Harley shop that was quite obviously advertised towards, you know, Harley Davidson's customization, that kind of thing. So that's why it tailed to me making mm -hmm. my own own logos, businesses, all that kind of stuff. And my background and people I knew, it kind of just worked that way. And it got to the point where I was more busy than the uh, than the Harley place from inside their workshop. So then I ended up getting my own workshop. Yeah, that's how it worked. That's awesome. Yeah, that's it's really cool how everybody sort of transitions through their careers and time and space and how things I would never have thought that that was a thing that could be period let alone yeah. be successful I mean you're you working self-employed inside someone else's shop working on yeah. their business pieces inside their shop but still starting yeah. your business from inside that shop and then growing yeah. outside growing your business bigger than that shop and then yeah. And you still talk to them. It's like it's not yeah. – it, it, like I spoke to about this earlier in the week. You do not have to how, – how do I phrase this eloquently to, to be specific? You do not have to be an asshole. You can be professional and respectful inside somebody else's business and succeed on your own. As yeah. long as you are professional and respectful, the sky is pretty much the limit. So you, right? you know you spoke about your one 
you wanted me to give one piece of advice or one tip, that's probably yes. the, perfect, the perfect time to say it right now. Um, my biggest bit of advice and the thing that shocked me the most when I opened my own workshop was how nice and how important it was to have really good working relationships with other car mechanics, motorcycle mechanics and other other local companies. Without everybody around me that helped me, that would be MOT tester sending me work that he couldn't do. Um, there's a, uh, a dyno, uh, a place called Track Electronics, who does electrical work and dyno setups on motorcycles. Without a company like him sending me mechanical work and helping alongside him, and also the place where he actually started my apprenticeship, uh, sorry, actually started my workshop inside the Harley place, it's, um, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have survived those first two years. It was all down to those, you know, those selective people that kept sending me work throughout those few years. And I, and I, and I probably wouldn't have survived the first two years if it wasn't for those people. So yeah, it's the most important thing. And even to this day, like, you know, we work together, I do certain things and anything that I don't do, dyno setups, fabrication, just send it all out to them. It works brilliantly. Collaborative efforts, respectful relationships, honest communication, mm -hmm. no faff, no malarkey, no shenanigans, just, hey, I'm full for like three weeks and I don't normally do this. Hey, can you help mm -hmm. me out? Can yeah. you help this customer? And more specifically, that's you that's you helping the customer. Yeah. Right? Fundamentally speaking, that's you helping the customer. It's like, I can't do this, or I'm unable to do this right now. I, let me find somebody who can take care of you and get back you get you back yeah. on the road. Uh, These are fundamentals. And, and there's so many things that I could do, but there's no point in me doing them because I can't do them as well as somebody five minutes down the road. So there's no point in me doing it. So like um, quick shifter set quick shifter setups on motorbikes. You can bolt a mm -hmm. quick shifter onto any motorcycle, put in the pre-programmed set and send it down the road, it'd be fine. But if you set that mm -hmm. up on the dyno and get the select trim settings correctly and the uh, and, and the pulse width set correctly so it actually cuts the engine for the correct amount of time, what you can only really do on a dyno is set up far better than what I can do in a workshop. So why would I do that when I can send it five minutes down the road and get it done better there? So um, there's, there's definitely things that I can definitely do here. There's no point in me doing it. I, I definitely might as well send it somewhere where they can just get a better, uh, a, a, you know, they can get a better result. It's not about, mm -hmm. I'm busy enough. I don't need that, that work. I can just, yeah, send them out, which I uh, do quite regularly. So it's quite good to have a lot of people that I can just send work to. And it's, it's interesting you say that because in, in, in here, in Canada, it doesn't happen. Right, it really doesn't okay. happen. When, when folks come in, if, let me see if I can come up with an example here. The biggest challenge is when you're working at a place that isn't a dealer and you're working at a small shop. The small shops fix, small shops maintain, but as you know, especially on motorcycles, there's maintenance reminders. Mm -hmm. Without the dealer software, for the most part, you can't reset them. So the yeah. maintenance light stays on. And many dealers... Um, as we've been told by our customers and as I've learned, you know, fixing motorcycles and being in power sports, many dealers will still charge just to reset the light. Yeah, because they know or, there's, no, there's no one else can do it. Or they won't reset the light and refuse to set the light because they didn't do the service. Yeah. yeah. So the relationship there is nearly non-existent these days, at least here. Yeah. Right, okay. And we've had oh. to cultivate relationships with the individual mechanics, and that's, I think, something that my boss has been trying to do for the last couple of years, trying, 
trying to cultivate more relationships with more mechanics because there are those out there. I believe the new Snap-on, uh, the new Snap-on Power Sports scanner is going to start doing more maintenance reminder resets because they've got access to the proprietary software and they're going to have installed. Yeah. Da, 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 da. That will make life a whole lot easier for the small shop, the non-dealer mechanic. Uh, to be able there, to... There, there, there is a motorcycle software, uh, like a you know, like a uh, diagnostic tool, which does ninety mm-hmm. percent of them. It's expensive, but it does ninety percent called Texa, um, and it's motorcycle specific. It's even um, so for a lot of the Italian brands, that is what they mm-hmm. use inside uh, main dealers. So I know MV Augusta uh, use it as their main main dealer tool, and there's a few different brands, but yeah, Texa, and you can buy it aftermarket. A lot of money, but it does 95% of uh, of, mo- of most it, of them. And is that what you use, or do you send it down the road for them to use it? No. So I've got I've got a customer, uh, uh, somebody I work with down the road has got got one of these machines, a Texan machine. I've definitely been looking at it recently, but I've got mm-hmm. quite a few single manufacturer tools which you can also buy. So uh, I can do Triumphs, BMW, the, the Ducati, pads, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a few like uh, sing, single manufacturer tools that I've got, so um, mm-hmm. I, I, I've gone down that route, and that's why I haven't jumped over to the the, the all-inclusive system just yet, just because I, I don't do the quantity of it that requires it, and I can get by 99% of the time with what I've got. Okay. And for those occasions, I, I, I can't. I just go down the road. It's it's a, the smaller shops, the smaller dealers are going to have difficulty forking out the large sums of money for an all-inclusive piece of software or piece of kit to be able to do that because it's it's very cost prohibitive in, in some yeah. circumstances. And I think we talked about a little bit about this on 10 mil when we were talking about what what's happening in EV in terms of Tesla and other brands trying to access the Tesla network. You know how the adapters are going to work. If it's going to be adaptive, uh, if it's going to be adapter, are they going to use the Tesla plugs? Are they going to use Tesla software? How that's going to work? What is what's the access to things like that? You know, I talked to uh, Lauren Majai. Uh, I, I talked to Lauren. I'm not going to try and say his last name. I talked to Lauren a little while back at a European branded store where they work on mostly BMWs and Mercedes. Mm-hmm. That small shop. Because they only work really on Mercedes and BMW, they have the proprietary Mercedes and BMW tools. Yes. But what's what's their lease and purchase going to be like in two to three years time? You know, what's that monthly bill going to look like? And this is the small shop going to be able to afford it? So I think you're yeah. kind of in that same same ballpark where you're in a small shop, but you're you work on a lot of different stuff. You work on Triumphs. I've seen you work on Triumphs. I've seen Duke, uh, KTM's in there. I've seen a, a little bit of everything. You work on a little bit yeah. of everything, don't you? Everything, yeah. There's not. Uh, there's probably not a single brand, apart from Chinese and that kind of thing. I stay very away from. And small CC bikes don't work on anything under kind of two fifties. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, above above that, pretty much anything I'll I'll, I'll get involved with as long as it's not, um, you know. Uh, so I had a Ducati in a few weeks ago that I couldn't do because I couldn't do a key learn because obviously that is a dealer, um, yeah, safety reasons you can't do anything key related outside of the dealer mm-hmm. network. So things like that obviously I can't do, but most of the other bits and pieces I can get involved with, which is always good. Um, another uh, another place I worked at while I was setting up my own workshop, um, and I know you've spoke before in the podcast, you quite like the electrical side of electrical side of mm-hmm. the automotive industry. I work for an electronic uh, or a diagnostic specialist 
for about oh, two nice. years while I was sitting on my workshop, kind of doing mornings or a, a few bits here and there. He was also, when I started working for him, he was on his own and he had an apprentice that kind of kind of left. So I kind of helped him out a few mornings and bits and pieces. He was doing a few odd um, mechanical bits and pieces, but he was a a pretty well-known diagnostic specialist who worked for a different company around here who was setting up on his own and that was brilliant the knowledge i learned from from working for somebody like that was excellent and all of the uh the tools and everything he had so he had full dealer capabilities for most manufacturers ford bm and all that full dealer capabilities so that was a uh, that was quite an eye-opening but yeah his uh his diagnostic selection was vast massive the amount of tooling he had I think there's when you get into the diagnostic portion of mechanic work and you enjoy it, yeah. especially if you enjoy it, there is a lot of very expensive tools, like very, very expensive tools that you can get yeah. into. Like when you talk about just talk about scopes and how expensive they can get because of how much more advanced you can purchase down the rabbit hole of yeah. what it's capable of doing and what it's capable of seeing. So that's what we specialized in doing, really, mm -hmm. that is the oscilloscope work. So um, mm -hmm. uh, most things electrically on the car can be diagnosed with an oscilloscope. It's amazing what you can do. And it was, and, you know, and, you know, it was all, uh, uh, it was all, it, it was all kind of um, that, that system of systematically working your way through learning and diagnosing things. And that sorted me out massively for my own work, my own workshop. Like the the stuff I learned and the systems of diagnosing things and how systems work was a, a massive learning curve and it's brilliant, really good. I I liken diagnostic, especially high level diagnostic work like that, and I liken that and I give you a, a physical example for those that are listening. High level mechanic diagnostic work is the same as high level diagnostic work in any profession. Mm -hmm. You have an individual who you can have uh, an individual who understands squeaks and rattles for the basic gist, understands that the, you can look for you know, loose ball joints, loose tie rod ends, and so on and so forth. And then you have someone who can diagnose uh, indirect noises. You know, I have a squeak in the car when I'm doing 60 kilometers an hour, you know, yeah. turning left. They can, they can, for the most part, they get pretty good at doing that, and they're a, a great diagnostician. And then you get the super high level people who are using like $25,000 oscilloscopes to diagnose things. And I liken this to my own life. So many years ago, many, many, many years ago, I dropped down off the, the back of a bed of a truck. <clears throat> so the tailgate was down. I, I, I jumped, so to speak. It's only like two and a half, three feet off the ground. And I landed funny on, on grass. And then I just dropped to the ground. And it hurt a whole lot. It hurt my knee a whole lot. And I didn't know why. It was like three feet. It's no big deal. I've done this a thousand times in my life. But I couldn't stand. And my knee kept giving out. And I didn't understand what happened. My knee just ballooned. Just absolutely ballooned. Uh, swollen. And somehow I hobbled back to the car. I drove home. My wife was at uh, chiropractic school at the time. And so on and so forth. All kinds of things happen and go through, check, and da-da-da. And one day, about two weeks later, after seeking treatment and trying to figure out, you know, how to get my knee better and blah, 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 blah. So we're in a room full of, of learning chiropractors. So my wife is at chiropractic school. So there's easily 10 to 12 learning chiropractors 
and three or four teachers in the room, and they're all looking at my x-ray because they're trying to figure out what's wrong with my knee. Why is my knee not healing given the circumstances, given what everybody's seen thus far? Hmm. And an individual walk in the room, and he's a Dakbar. So a Dakbar is an individual who is a chiropractor as well as a X-ray um, technologist and uh, something else. So they have three doctorates. Yes. So you yeah. can conceptually you can think how extensive their knowledge is and their ability and to as well. It's it's broad. So yeah. they know bones better than just about anybody else if you think bones from the tv show that's probably the level of knowledge they have so you have these 12 people in this room looking at my x-ray okay and they all they've all got that dog look on their uh face and they, they don't know what they're looking at and, he, and they, the question is i was like yeah what are you go what are you looking at what are you look what are you guys looking at it's like we're looking at this x-ray we're trying to figure out what's wrong with it what's, what's wrong with his knee and he goes yeah it's broken and walks away and all tw- almost in pure synchronization, all 12, so to speak, I watch them all do the dog head tilt to the, to the left. And they all, huh. So I had broken, I had a microfracture of my tibial plateau. Right. And 12 people staring at this x-ray for exactly. probably 20 minutes hadn't seen it. And this guy with so much diagnostic knowledge walks in, looks at it for half a second, goes, it's broken and walks away. That is the level of difference between someone who is trained, trained well, trained well and really experienced, and the super elite diagnostician. Yeah. So I I preach training for a reason. That is why. Yeah. And and that was the level, the guy that I worked for, that's probably the level that he was at. I know he did Mm -hmm. really well. He used to go and do all the diagnostic competitions throughout the UK. They they have time competitions out here. And... uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I know he'd done very well in a few of those, um, and he was always very up to date on all the training programs, so all of the EV training as well. He was, even though I wasn't working for him full time, and he knew very well that I wasn't going to be there forever. Um, he was also willing to put me through my own EV training and everything. Like he was really up on it. It was brilliant. So um, yeah, training is definitely a super important part of what we do. What would you say as a as a small shop owner? And for the length of time that you've been turning wrenches and owning a business and running a business, I'm assuming as you are still a, a one-man show, you haven't had apprentices, or if you had, it might be few and far between bet- uh, over the years. Yeah. And even given the fact you've worked in small shops with apprentices, what would you say is the most beneficial trait in an apprentice that maybe a service leader could look for when they're trying to hire one? Um. So the few apprentices that I've worked with and worked for, the ones that, uh, obviously everyone's going to say willingness to learn. Like, that's brilliant. That's great. A lot of people out there really want to learn. But the ones that always learned the best were the ones that, or the safe, or, 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 or learned in the safest manner, in terms of mechanically, were the ones that were always willing to ask you a question. So not, so if they were doing something and they weren't quite sure, Rather than going ham-fisted and just going at it like a raging bull, trying to fix it, trying to impress you, the ones that are actually, mm-hmm. I don't know 100% what I'm going to do, I might as well ask. I'd rather an apprentice ask me 400 questions a day than broke five things a day because they didn't know what they were doing. I've had both kind of apprentices I've worked with. 
I've much preferred working with, and, and they were definitely safer to go and do things on their own, especially the first few, first year or so. I'd be way more willing to allow somebody to go and learn on their own and go and do a bit of work on their own, unsupervised as such, because I knew that they were going to come and ask me questions if anything they weren't wrong or they weren't happy with something. It's the ones that think that they can, you know, uh, oh, I'll try and impress somebody, I will go a bit ham-fisted, I will try a bit too hard. They were the ones that almost you don't want to leave on their own, and that definitely hindered their learning because they weren't just, just weren't getting as much hands-on experience. And you you need that hands-on experience in the first few years. That's really important. So I'm 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 going to agree and disagree, and I'm going to play yeah. devil's advocate here for a second because this is yeah. this is the kind of conversation that I like having because this really gets into where I'm trying to help technicians from a high level and from a low level and service leaders, because the, some, what you've said here, and I'm going to try and relate this to something else. Mechanics who ask you questions and you'd rather ask, have young apprentices ask you a 400 questions in a day to learn because they're, it's more safer that way instead of go ham fisted, as you say, into something. So what I've been discovering over this last uh, couple of years in this journey of, of mental wellness in the shop floor, uh, apprentice learning, so on and so forth, is that we have three fundamental ways that we learn. Auditory, tact tactile, and visual. Yep. yep. The, appren the apprentices and, and coaches, not coaches, the apprentices and the mechanics that have come to me for coaching that I've coached over the last year, I try to get them all to do this learning quiz to see how they learn. And out of the 30 or so that had successfully taken that quiz, 28 of them have been 70% or higher on tactile learning. Mm -hmm. So these same technicians did not do well with me auditorily. They had yeah. a very big challenge with, with me, me trying to teach them anything like you and I are talking right now. I had to write yeah. things down. I had to do either email or text. They had to read it to understand yes. what it is that they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Would you say the apprentices that you've dealt with that would not ask you questions, that would go, as you say, ham-fisted in, would that be an individual that's not able to learn as easily in an auditory sense so they are less inclined to ask you questions, would you say? No, not, not, not particularly, because a lot of times when I've had somebody who, um, who asked you lots of questions, it doesn't mean they want you to, you know, do it for them. They just want to be shown or they want to be talked through it while they do it. I think they still, people still want to learn hands-on. It's just because they've asked and how do they do it. doesn't mean they want to, they don't want to do it themselves. They just want a bit of either reassurance or a bit of guidance rather than, you know, uh, I'll do this, you watch me or, or, or anything uh, other way of learning. I still believe that a lot of people still want to do uh, or, or, or the you know relatively small numbers of people that I've dealt with, they definitely want to do it themselves. It's just uh, you know a, a bit, bit of guidance sometimes rather than anything else. So then perhaps the next step in that, would you believe, based on your experience with those and how they asked you questions and what the result then was, would you say that's from a place of a lack of confidence so they want the guidance? versus those that are ham-fisted who perhaps exude a level of arrogance yes. that they believe they know better. Yes, yeah. It's the ones that want to do it right who ask you. They're the ones, um, rather than the ones that have a, uh, 
yeah, not not it's not always always arrogance. Sometimes it's a bit of overconfidence. Um, it's not it's not it's not always arrogance. It's some, some yeah sometimes a bit of overconfidence and just need to take it a bit slower. Like you you learn and you're not trying to do you know uh, not trying to book ten hours of labour a day. You're just trying to uh, just try, just trying just trying to learn. So it's, I think it's just a, a bit of both really. Awesome, I appreciate yeah. that feedback because the there are. There are leaders out there that are having a challenge getting a. They're having a challenge getting technicians into the bay, mm-hmm. and b. They're having a real challenge getting young apprentices in and staying in, because the yeah. job isn't easy, mm-hmm. right? You, you know yourself, working for yourself, owning your business, um, trying to get customers in, trying to keep customers, trying to keep customers happy, trying to do the job well, trying to do the job with quality, um, making sure you're doing all the bits and pieces right. I, one of the things that many mechanics who don't own a shop or run a shop understand is how difficult and how time-consuming customer management is, and yes. then still being able to go, did I tighten that bolt? Did I torque it down? Did I tighten this bolt? Did I torque it down? Did I put that panel on? Did I forget to put the the, the inner sleeve and the rear wheel? You know, because I, I I remember the wheel fell over, it fell on the side, and the inner sleeve uh, uh, yeah. between the bearings fell out. Da 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 da. That and stuff then happens. You keep you awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, as as an individual who's been there and thinks about those things, it happens. So teaching the young apprentices what we want from them, what we expect from them, so that they can succeed is one of the biggest challenge I see. We I already I when we were talked about earlier on you know, the difference between going into a small shop with a one-on-one mentor who's going to teach similar to your circumstance where, you know, you're not going to make me any, I'm not looking for you to make me any money this year. I want you to learn so that you can make me money down the road. Having that same mindset and including conversations like, this is how I expect you as an apprentice to act, to talk, to speak, to communicate, to me, to to your peers, to your customers, so that you can learn how to do this well so you can make us money. Those kinds of conversations aren't being had en masse. I know there's some leaders that are doing it. I know that if you were leading a team, you would be doing it because it's how you were taught. But these are the things that we need to communicate to not only the the service leaders of our industries, um, but our apprentices as well. We need them to, to understand and Understand the boundaries, understand the rules, understand expectations clearly. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and it's um so when I was when I had my first workshop, I'm in my second premises now. When I was in my first workshop, I was at that point where I needed to go out and find apprentices. So I was either I was at that crux point of my work where I could either um I had too much work to do by myself, so I needed to get in extra help. And it was, uh, I know you said it, it's a struggle to find apprentices at the minute and the right ones. I definitely agree with that. I got to that point mm-hmm. and I was looking around for a few a few people. I had quite a few people come in and do kind of a few days with me. And I got to the point with my workshop where I actually decided to go the complete other route, to going down the traditional route of, you know, more work, more employees, getting in more people, more turnover of work. I did a completely different route. I actually end up building this workshop I'm in right now, which is actually in my garden. It's actually at home. So I built a workshop at home, moved from my workshop with other people helping me out, you know, uh, a bit sporadically, they were helping me out. So I've worked back in, moved back into a workshop in my home, and I'm now working at home 
basically from my front garden on my own. And it's, um, I took a complete left turn at that point because it was so difficult to find good help and also to get to a point where I would be turning over the right amount of work that I wanted to do. So to, to, you know, to justify taking on two or three more employees, which is what I would have needed to do, is quite a step up in work from where you are with just one person. And I would have had to have taken on work that I didn't necessarily want to take on. So, but it would have been those, those you know, older bikes that I, I, I didn't want to work on or uh, smaller CC bikes that I wasn't that, that happy working on. And I definitely went down the route of going for you know, more specialist workers, I, I, I guess, more of the, the modern bikes, sports bikes, that kind of thing, track bikes that I do quite a lot, a lot of. I took a complete different avenue uh, than the traditional route of, you know, more work, bigger premises, more people. I went the complete opposite way. I went more smaller niche and then just uh, where I am now working on my own. I think, I think that being able to have the courage to have that discussion with yourself, to go figure out where your individual boundaries are. It's like, this is the kind of work that I want to do. How, how do I work backwards from this? How do I work on, I, I don't know the number for you, but how do I work on five bikes a week that I want to work on mm-hmm. for people that I want to, as, for customers that I want to work for, because that's effectively, yeah. you, as a business owner who, who self-employed, do all the work and do all the business, the customers are who you work for. So what customers do I want to work for? What bikes do I want to work work on? And how few can I do it so that I really enjoy the work? And how can I afford to run the business so that it's both uh, a value driven for my customers and pays my mortgage at the yeah, same same rate? And being able to answer that from uh, a genuine place where I'm I'm happy with the decision I've made because I'm very happy with the work I do, that that takes a lot of courage to say these are my boundaries. And yeah. you've done that. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was, it was it was a massive step. It was huge, and I it's and it definitely felt like a backward step at the time when I did that. It was only two and a half years ago I moved into this workshop. Maybe less, two years ago. It was definitely felt like a backward step. I'd gone from having my own workshop, my own premises, you know, um, and I'd gone backwards to somebody working from home, and there was big concerns about. Um, uh, my biggest concern was people not believing I was as professional as you know I, I could have been if I was in a bigger workshop. I was worried that people thought I was you know somebody working out of their shed, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I I, I I I I do make quite a special effort, to, I guess, to uh, you know have a good, nice, clean workshop, good work, that kind of thing. And that's kind of where I started to push the whole social media thing, just to try mm-hmm. and. Just to try and show people that I wasn't just somebody working from my garage. I'd done other things and other bits and pieces. I wasn't just working from my, my personal home, you know. I was, that, was, that was half of the reason why I started the whole uh, social media bit, really, all of the videos I get. I proving value. Yeah, that, it, that, that is the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, proven value, I guess. And I think that, that leads you to me kind of meeting you, seeing your content, and, and then subsequently reaching out. But... Ooh. I think in my own life, had I been able to have a business out back and I've got now I, I can guarantee a country and, and B a lot of other things, but my property is a lot bigger than yours. I, I got a hundred 
I'm I'm at home too, so I'm 140 frontage, and it's 220 back. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it a little bit bigger property than yours, I can guarantee. And Massive I already have it, a. Yeah. How big is your shop? Uh, so mine is so this is uh, 60 square meters. So 60 six. square. Uh, I can fit ten, in my workshop. I can. I, I've got enough room for I'd say two workbenches. And I can fit about um, 15 bikes I've had in there before. So it's not so huge. For the, it's downsized from what I had before. For the Imperial Incline, that's roughly 650 square feet. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give, I'll give you another small example. I have a 1,200 square foot shop in my backyard. Yeah. There you go. I am not allowed to professionally work out of it. Yes. Yeah, that was another big part of what I had to go through as well, was getting that agreed for where I am as well. I've asked. There, mm -hmm. It is explicit. Uh, you yes. are not allowed to do... It doesn't matter what mechanic work, whether it's hydraulic, whether it's HD, whether it's motorcycle, it doesn't matter. I am not yeah. allowed to have mechanic premises on my property. Yeah. And if the answer to that question six years ago was yes... I probably would be almost in an identical place that you are right now because I'd be fixing motorcycles in my shop professionally in yeah, my backyard um, without yeah. without a second hesitation. Because yeah. um, I have... So my, my shop out back is split into two. It's got two 10-foot doors on the front. Nice, yeah. Um, the person who built the property actually built that shop the year I was born in 83, which is kind of cool. So the shop is as old as I am. The house isn't. The house was built eight years later. It was built in 91. Um, but the shop out back is as old as I am. The left side of the shop is the same size shop as yours, about 600, 600 650 square feet. It's insulated, uh, and I have a wood stove in it to heat it, as well as a gas furnace if I if I were to turn it on. Yeah, so I, being able to, if, if I could, I would work absolutely full-time turning wrenches out of that little shop. It makes me happy to be back there working on stuff. It makes it's me very amazing. happy. It's amazing what you can do when you haven't got massive overheads. So, um, and the decisions you can make on uh, work you take on for for interest and for learning uh, is a big part of what I do. I don't have to take on work now purely to earn the money. I take on work mm -hmm. because. I'm interested in it and I want to, and I want to, want to learn things. One of the big things I did last year is I, uh, I went and worked for a race team. So I did a bit of subcontract work for a race team. And it was a mechanic at the time. It was a possibility of becoming an engineer's role this year that didn't, didn't happen in the end. But that was, you know, far less money than I could have earned if I was in my workshop. But mm -hmm. the learning potential and the things I learned that year were you know, greater than anything I could have done in my own workshop. So it was, it was worth it for me. It was totally worth it. I think as the phrase goes, when you are employed, whether, whether you're employed or you employ yourself, if you are not learning or earning, you shouldn't work there. If you get yeah. both, you're in an ideal spot. Yeah. But if learn or earn, and every apprentice should, learn, should understand that, if, you are not in a, if you're making crappy money, but you're learning a ton, you're still earning money yeah. because you're going to earn it down the road. If you're earning lots of money and not learning, you should be learning on your own time, but you're earning a big paycheck. So that's, yeah. that's fundamentally down the road. Yeah. So, um, 
and, and having the worship from home has, you know, allowed me to go down that route and do those things, which, you know, is massive for what I do. So out of everything that you fix, mm-hmm. and because you get to choose what you fix and work on, yeah. for the most part, I would imagine there's sometimes you probably say yes and you go, I'm, I'm fixing this because I know they have, you know, they have a stable of motorcycles at home and the other five motorcycles I enjoy fixing and I don't want to fix this, but I'll fix this yeah. because it means I have six bikes to fix. What is lot, your yeah, favorite bike to, to work on? Um... I don't have any massive brand loyalty, so there's no one particular brand as such that I like. Um, I've worked on so many that I've kind of got to know the niches for each one. I definitely agree with the whole, we were talking about it earlier, Triumphs. Mm -hmm. They are lovely to work on, well thought out, quite over-engineered in some some manners, which is quite a nice thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Hondas as well, I quite like a Honda. They are, again, quite well thought out for mechanical sympathy. Um, and quite easy and nice to work on. It's more the types of jobs that I like to do rather than the... uh, Yeah, it's more the type of work that I like to do rather than the uh, specific brand that it's on. So I do do quite a lot of uh, like fork seals, that kind of thing. I quite enjoy that kind of work. Um, Mm -hmm. But the stuff I really enjoy is the electrical side of things. So wiring, um, I actually make quite a few wiring harnesses. I've got a little workbench just behind me here that's set up for wiring harnesses. I really enjoy that side of work. And for me at the moment, that is the section of my work that doesn't really earn me the, the money, but I do it because I love it and I like learning that side more than anything else. So that is my, that's my section of work which I do for myself rather than I do to earn money, basically. So to try and contextualize that, when you say doing wiring harnesses, are you talking about like if a bike, if somebody wants to build a race bike, so they bring you a, a bike and you yeah. need to chop the harness so that it's only the bare minimum? So um, all the ones I do are complete. I, I, I don't like altering harnesses. I throw them away, start complete from scratch. So behind me here is a little, it's actually an old BSA that someone has put a standalone ECU on it, uh, put all their own switch gear on. So I'll just make a harness straight from scratch. And I, I enjoy that side of things. I do all the wiring diagrams, make me own wiring diagrams, uh, make like a rope wiring loom. So you make a model wiring loom out of rope, then you can take that over to the bench and then make the full loom on the bench with the diagram and then the, the rope kind of uh, uh, guide, basically. So I really like that side of it, really enjoying it. And I feel like it's the only, th- a lot of things in mechanical, it, uh, the reason I think I like it so much is a lot of things in the mechanical world are right or wrong. So you fit a part, you fit it correctly, you torque it up, that's right, it's done. It's fitted right, correct. With wiring looms, there is more than one way to skin around. <laughs> There's more than one way to do things. You can route things differently, you can make them more efficiently, uh, you can do different, like, you know, earth routing, which has got better earth points, better earth systems, you know, more uh, flexible ways of building the harnesses, better coatings. It's a, it's a thing that you can get better at over time, and you can... Uh, you, you, there's, there's different levels to it. You can, you can wire a bike up by just connecting all the connectors, but that's not making a reliable wiring loom. Making something reliable, last long, look good, rooted correctly is completely different. And that's why I really like it. You can, and I've, and I've got better at it over time. So the looms that I was making two years ago, probably nowhere near as good as the ones I'm making now, purely because of the fact that I've 
you know got better techniques better tooling better crimps you know better better, better insulation there's, there's definitely better ways of doing everything and i really like that journey of getting to somewhere where something is much better than it was a few years ago i, I, I enjoy it awesome mm. that's awesome I've, I've never heard of doing well i've heard of doing uh, uh wiring harnesses from scratch mm. but i've never heard of doing it in, in rope first that's that's yeah. really cool because it means that you get the right lengths, you get the right branching, yeah. you know exactly where it's gonna run because you can, you know, you zip tie the rope the way you want it. Okay, this is yeah. how it's gonna sit, and then you can take pictures of it, how it's laying down, and then yeah. when you build it, you can then, okay, you can get, uh, you can get really creative with with the section, like the section joints where you can branch out, and that's where you get a lot of wire tucking, so you can get wires, you know, you can get them hidden in a little bit better places. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So That's awesome. Uh, and so a couple of about a month ago or so, I wired up uh, an engineer friend of mine who builds a lot of custom motorcycles. Motorcycles. I do all of his wiring looms for his custom motorbikes. But he has just made or just finished a uh, a Model T Ford with a V8 engine in it. And I went and wired oh that up a few weeks. I went and wired it up a few weeks ago. And obviously, I can't get that over here in my workshop. So I went out to his workshop, made the rope loom. Well, I was at his, and then obviously the wiring diagram while I was there, came back, made the loom on my workbench, and then went and plugged it in, and it worked. So, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so that's the, that was a really, that was something totally different and awesome. It was so cool, yeah. And I, I just really enjoy making things like that. Really cool project to be involved with. Awesome. That yeah. I, I just, I, I'm trying to fathom a V8 in a, mo in a model. Like, that's so, a... Yeah. It was, just, it was like a 1950s, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, it's not my kind of thing, so I don't even know what it was. It was a, like a small block V8, I think, mm -hmm. 1950s, some of that kind of era. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a, there might be a picture of it on my social media somewhere. I'll have to see if I can find it and link it. That, that'll, that'll yeah. do, that'll do. Oh, so, okay, so I have a personal question now. I am, okay. I am transitioning to my second bike, sort of. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my first bike, kind of my second bike, because I bought an SV650. I've got a 99 SV650 that I bought broken. And unfortunately... 99? 99. That's, that's, what, that's what my race bike is. Yep, I, I know. So, <laughs> I know. So, I bought this bike, and it's had approximately 10 different owners since 99. Yep. When I bought it, it was supposed to be, uh, if I get the nomenclature right, it's supposed to be a K, not an N. Meaning it's supposed it was supposed to be bars and not clip-ons for those who need to look it up and you can Google what bars versus clip-ons is because it had has clip-ons it's supposed to have bars but it has clip-ons it had no uh, front fairing it had an aftermarket dash um, it had spackle rainbow colored paint and at some stage I might send you the picture of what it looked like when it came home it was ugly as sin. And it uh, still looks yeah, ugly as sin. I could envision. But I bought it broken because I bought it for like, I bought it for a thousand dollars Canadian, which is like six hundred dollars, six hundred quid, give or take. Yep. And I okay, this is my first bike. I'm gonna tear it down. I'm gonna learn about it. I'm gonna put it back together the way I want to. I don't care if things are broken because I'm gonna put new things on, so on and so forth. And then life got very, very, very busy. So I have. When I brought it home, I tootled around my, my driveway, which is quite large, once. Mm -hmm. So I've right. technically ridden it. So it's technically my first bike and the first thing I've ridden. 
but I haven't written it on the street. And I've only done the learner's course here back in the fall, so it's almost a year I've had my learner's, my learner's license, as it were. Yep. So it is still broken. It is still in 100 pieces in my shop at home. And every time I take more apart to fix more, I find more broken. So I mm-hmm. put the headlight harness in it. I've put the main harness in it. I have uh, tried to find switch gear. I've tried to find a new dash. I found a new dash, uh, which is good used. Uh, I have no idea how many kilometers are on it because it had an aftermarket dash in it that was broken when I bought it. Right. It's had so many owners, no idea whether the kilometers are correct. correct. And like I said, every time I fix something, I find more broken. So it hasn't run since I brought it home over a year and a half ago. So I'm on the hunt for a bike. And I've mm-hmm. got a nice chunk of change summed up for, or saved up for a down payment. And I am loving all of the middleweight nakeds. Yep. So yesterday I literally traveled a whole lot with my son and we went to another bike, a bike shop with a whole lot of bikes that I could swing a leg over. And I'm trying to decide between all of the middleweight nakeds, including, I thought I wanted a bobber. I got on the bobber yesterday and it was instant discomfort. So I was really big sad. Yeah. Triumph triumph bottom of a bobber. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was instant discomfort, which made me really, really sad. Mm-hmm. So I'm left with all the middleweight naked. So KTM 890 Duke R. Yep. Triumph Street Triple 765RS. Yep. MT09. GSX-S 750. Yeah. Z900 Kawasaki. Yeah. And FZ09, if I were to go to an older model. And I think out of out of those ones, I'm I'm having a hard time choosing. So th- th- this is now, I would say, almost the biggest market there is for motorcycles. People have realised recently, sports bike, or not not recently, it's kind of been a progression over the last kind of 15 years. Sports bikes, especially when you get up to 1,000 C bikes, are so powerful for the road. They're almost, uh, for most riders terrifying is is definitely the best way to justify it and also just completely unnecessary you don't uh, i struggle to find i know a lot of my customers do and they love it and i struggle to see the need for a thousand cc sports bike on the road 600s we're getting to the point where they are you know enough of a bike to be on the road a thousand cc sports bikes now are just they're mental mind mind blowingly fast and, and and the electronics packages that are on them that allow I'm, I want to in, I want to interrupt down. you for just for a second for someone who's listening to think about how mental this is. A Kawasaki ZH2 is a supercharged inline four naked bike, quote unquote naked yeah. bike. It weighs about 500 pounds and it's 320 horsepower. So yeah. for those of you who have any concept of what power to weight ratio is like. 320 horsepower. So that's more horsepower than an, than an S3, an Audi S3. That's more horsepower than an S3, more horsepower than just about any four-cylinder turbocharged car on the market. And it weighs yeah. 500 pounds. Yeah. That is the middleweight category. You go a step down from that to like a, a, a Ducati V4. I think it's a V4S, the Street Fighter. So it's handlebars. It's a naked. Yeah. It's 250 horsepower. It's yeah, stupid. Have, I know, I, I know, and, and it's unbelievable for the road. And and 
I've been, I've been doing lots of track days and uh, even started racing in the last few years. Um, even on the track, there is a very, very small percentage of people that can even use that power properly on a track, let alone on the road. So it's, um, it, it, it's mind-blowing that, they, that so many of them still sell, but that's, a, that's another story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why this middleweight naked bike has become so popular. Because even you know, uh, even the 765 Triumph, that's still 130 brake. That's still a serious, serious bike. Doesn't weigh a lot, and you're also in a semi-comfortable position um, that can you can do a few miles on it. And out of those bikes that you uh, you spoke about, that is the one I would go for every time. The Triumph 765. And yeah, I think I think it's to me. I I put a post on LinkedIn uh, a week or so ago, and I had the bobber on there. I did not have the street triple, and, and mm-hmm. I, for for at the time, after, before I had swung swung a leg on on any of these, at the time it was off the list because it was more expensive. It was off the list because yeah. it was more expensive on insurance. But now that I've sat on the bobber and immediately experienced discomfort, it's just it's gone. I had the Z900 on there as my number two choice because uh, because of its price point, because of its yeah. Japanese reliability, they're, and because of its insurance. More, but- they're a bit more of a placid bike. So if you're going to go out and do a bit more of uh, a bit of mileages, a bit more mileage, you're going to go for a bit more, you know, ride out with a few friends. If you want to go out and maybe ride a little bit harder, possibly do a track day. The 765 is the one. It's, it's a bit more of an aggressive street bike, but they are just phenomenal. They sound amazing. They ride well. They've got all of the, this is, you know, uh, all the good electrical packages you want nowadays. They're, mm-hmm. um, yeah, a really, really good little bike. And and that's what I I think I found after sitting on one yesterday, and the same thing with the with DSXS seven fifty between yeah. now it's like bargain basement in terms of price if you can find one I have not been yes. able to find one I've not been able to sit on one I've yeah. not been able to see one because all of my yeah. even the remotely close dealers don't have one um, all of the ones that are for sale on the, in the local marketplaces Kijiji and Facebook and so on by the time I find the ad it's already sold. So I haven't been able to sit on one, but from what I can tell, after now sitting on the Triumph, and now here's the one that you haven't answered, and this is this is this is my caveat now, this is yeah. the 890 Duke R. I sat um, on I sat on the RS, and then I sat on the 890 Duke R, and the Duke R felt better. Yeah. But I'm looking at this going Triumph or KTM. It, yeah, it depends what type of rider I think you are and what you enjoy about riding the bikes. The other, the other one that I would throw in, the other bike for another one to throw into your list is the uh-huh. Husqvarna 701. They do a, it's, it's their supermoto style or their uh, supermoto style bike. If you're somebody who likes to go out for 60, 70 mile blasts, wants a really lightweight bike, I'd always, I'd recommend this 701. If you want to go do 100 plus miles and you want to be on the bike for a good few hours, it's not for you. But if you want to go out for a, you know, an A-road blast, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. on a a nice lightweight bike that you can throw around, those 701s are just fantastic. And that's a similar kind of thing. Isn't that the same bike though? Yeah. It's just set up slightly different. It's just set up slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. But they're very exact, like you say, almost the same. Because I, I had the opportunity, because it's the first one I've actually seen in the flesh. They had a Svartbilen 401 at yeah. GP Bikes yesterday. And it's mm-hmm. the it's basically a KTM Duke 390 in a slightly 390, different yeah. skin. It's a, it's, it, the way it's 
built, it looks very Tron-esque with, with yes. knobby tires on the back. It's very Tron-esque, the way it looks. It looks closer to a dirt bike, but it's, it, it feels like a road bike, but it's got dirt bike tires on it, effectively, in a it's 390s. Almost that so it's a little scrambler. Like, like, yeah. It's almost that street yeah. scrambler style, yeah. And they're, and they're a really good little bike. I feel like after riding a, a, a 390 for a couple of months, you find lacking in power a little bit. They are mm -hmm. definitely, yeah, you, and, and they are a little bit small. Um, that next step up to, like you say, the 690 and such like is, is a really good little bike. Yeah, that's, that's a and kind I, of really good mid-weight. And that, is that 701? That is, that is a, they, when, when KTM phased out the 690 because they brought in yes. the 790, the Spark Feeling 701 is basically the KTM 690 in their, in their chassis slash frame setup, right? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I kind of, yeah. I kind of figured it up because I have sat on an old 690 and I didn't like how it felt between yeah. my legs. They're quite aggressive. They're quite like pitch you forward on the bike, weight yeah. forward. It, it, they're good for like, uh, you know, an hour, hour and a half. You want to go out for a real quick, fast blast. Um, but yeah, you don't want to be doing big miles on it. Yeah, and that, I think that's the, the that might be the trouble because I want to do two things. I'm going to do mm -hmm. a truck ton of short trips like yeah. five five to 15 minutes max. And then yeah. my mom is three hours away. Yeah. And my sister is three hours away. And my my all of my trips to the city, if I'm going to go down and do bike meets, car meets, whatever, 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 cars and coffee is down in the city. So it's like two, two and a half hours one way. Yeah. yeah. I, I need something that's going to be comfort on the long trip as just as well as decent in in town as it were so i don't i don't think i can do the pitch for it and that's why i sat on i also sat on a um just for grins and giggles a, a ducati supermoto yesterday just mm -hmm. for grins and giggles as well as the the ktm supermoto and it's just too high it's just too it's too much yes yeah um, they can be yeah at the same time knowing that if i was only if i wanted to do some backcountry stuff as well it would be a whole lot of fun. Yeah, and that—that that is the toss-up. You can't. There isn't a bike that does both as well as the. You know, you get a bike that's more specific for that job. You need to find mm -hmm. something that is right for what you're going to use it for. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I, as I experience power sports and motorcycles, I find that people start to grow stables, and and I've mm. I've been told that a stable is more than two. So you uh, can have yeah, two yeah. bikes. If you have two bikes, you have two bikes. But if you have three bikes or more, you have a stable. And that's and yeah. is, it, would you agree with that? Yeah, you got a collection then, haven't you? Yeah. You got a, you got a nice you growing collection, and I think it's a stable is more is three or more, and the collection mm. is more than fifteen. Yeah, yeah, that's that. that, that I'd agree with that. Yeah, fifteen is a bit more. Because <laughs> when you when you've got fifteen, you're not riding them every year, and that's a collection. Then it's not it's not usable bikes, is it? Exactly. Yeah, that's that crossover point, I guess. Uh, for example, uh. Where where I'm working, um, gentleman has actually stored, I think eight of his bikes at the shop for majority of his life. He buys, yeah. he keeps, he he collects and he stores at this facility. Yes. And one of them, he's he recently decided to sell. So he had a 1997 Kawasaki ZX11. Mm -hmm. It had three kilometers on it. Oh, excellent! Completely original. Com Lovely. Now. When you have a bike that sits for 27 years, 
without literally being ever touched other than making sure there was air in the tires. You need to do repairs, so it, it required some it required some effort to make it a running bike again. Yeah. Um, every, every every rubber seal on that bike will be perished. Carbs need rebuilding. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of an overhaul. It, it it was a it was a bit of a challenge to get it back back yeah. working the way the way it should. And you know, 27 years on on a Kawasaki is a long way to to expect parts to be even remotely readily available. Yes. Yeah. But it was interesting to see a 27-year-old bike uh, start for the first time in 27 years, and uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting bit. It was an interesting bit. Excellent. So, I, I, Mike, I really appreciate the time. Um, no problem at all. There's lots of great insight in there. Where can folks find you? See you? See your content? Um, if somebody happens to be in your areas, and and forget, uh, uh, forgive me if I get it wrong. It's Norwich, yes. Norwich, yeah. Norwich, Norwich. Norwich, yeah. Um, with with with, if, with the pronunciation. <laughs> with with the with the English pronunciation. Yeah. Um, if anybody and happens it, to be in in your area who's looking for for motorcycle repair to to reach out to you, how do they find you? How do they get in touch with you? Best way to get in contact with me is uh, obviously I've got a website, but on the social media side of things, I've got a uh, Instagram, Able Motorworks. Um, I upload quite a few videos to YouTube and TikTok, those kind of things as well. So you can find me across most platforms, all under the name Able Motorworks or Mike Able. Awesome, awesome. And, and for any leaders out there that want to understand what it's like to do. Um, video MPIs. If you want to learn how to walk around a vehicle, talk about a vehicle in a way that customers are going to want to engage with and understand simply, please check out Mike's videos. They are very informative, very educational, and very easy to consume. And this is the kind of thing that I want technicians to learn how to do on mass, especially if you're doing video MPIs in the States. This is kind of Mike's work is benchmark, especially if you look at the, tic the, the, the TikTok, the Instagram stuff. They're short. They're like a minute or less. Yeah. When you can describe what's going on with a vehicle simply, clearly, and effectively in a minute or less, that is the ideal video MPI. So you are – you could – I'm willing to bet you could teach people how to do what you do on video on mass and dealers would would do quite well with it to to teach technicians to do this so yeah. Yeah. please folks check out mike's work mike's content all over i'll make sure that it's posted uh anybody that's listening on spotify i'll make sure it's in the description uh when i post this to youtube it'll be in the description when i post this to linkedin it'll be in the description so you guys can check them out check out the content so uh, appreciate again, it thank, mike, thank you words. very much you're Thank very you. welcome. Oh no! That's the end of the episode! But that's okay because there'll be another one coming in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much, folks. I really appreciate you watching. I really hope you enjoy and subscribe. Folks, just to let you know that if, if you recall a couple months back that our brother Marshall Sheldon said something very creative on the show, flat rate sucks, changed my mind. We all had a good laugh. And he said, if I had that, I'd wear it. I'd wear it all the time. Well, guess what, Brother Marshall? You can. Folks, check out the link below in the description, whether you're on Spotify or on YouTube, and check out the merch store. Because Flat Rate Sucks, Change My Mind, is there. Thank you very much, folks, for listening. And let's close out the show like we always do with a quote. 
and this one this one's definitely going to hit home for a few the two most powerful warriors are patience and time leo tolstoy remember folks negative pushes positive pulls and always clean your toys before you put them away